everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Ruby for all. Julie, what is up in your world? Sorry, I didn't think about what is up. What's up with you? I am dealing with medication issues again and Ah. a looming project deadline. Oh, right. So So are you still slotted for your deadline? I am making magic happen. We, me and my project partner, we're making things happen. We did something in like 30 minutes a day that I thought was going to take us a lot longer. So it's all about those small wins, man. Have you thought about what's up with you? Yeah. Well, I guess I also have a deadline of next Friday and I'm feeling like we're not going to make it. We'll see. There's something that we're supposed to try to figure out how to automate basically getting something to pass tests and there's like hundreds of them and we don't want to do it manually. But the process to figure out how to automate it is not straightforward and is taking a lot of time. So the time that we're spending on doing that, maybe it would have been faster to just manually do it. But anyway, today is special because I'm very excited. We have a guest today who is my former bootcamp instructor at All Aboard Bootcamp, John Crepezzi. Welcome to the show. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, great to be here. Yes, my name is John Krabetsi. I have been in the Ruby community since I think 2009. I've been kind of all over. I've made a bunch of gems. I've made Rails applications professionally at like six different places. I've made a bunch of side projects that of various scale, which I can talk about. Some of which are like, have turned into real companies that make money. At some point I made this all aboard bootcamp, which we can talk about. And that was a, an attempt to kind of teach Ruby to a whole bunch of people all at the same time. And then kind of recently, I worked at GitHub. I was a principal software engineer there for a couple of years. I was there five years total. And then recently, I've transitioned to my first job in a while that is not in Ruby. And it's at a company called JaneTree in New York. And we write OCaml, which is a, a functional programming language, which we can also talk about. What gem have you written that you're the most proud of? So like pride is a fun thing, right? So like at, there are different stages of pride too. Like when I first wrote the, the gem that I'm going to talk about, which is called Ice Cube, uh, I was proud of it because like there was a technical complexity to writing it at the time. So we have to talk about, take a step back and talk about what the gem does. The gem is for doing recurring date math and time math. So you might be able to say something like, I want you to give me the time that falls every two weeks at 2 p.m., but skip all the days that don't land on a Friday and maybe like skip this one off other day. And when you do that, and maybe it seems like pretty straightforward because the naive implementation is fairly straightforward. You just jump two weeks forward in time over and over again, and then maybe have some validation that's like, skip these dates. But if you wanted to very quickly say, what is the date of the hundredth occurrence of that rule? Then it'd be really inefficient to jump through two weeks at a time. So you'd instead want to be able to do the math to jump directly to the hundredth one. And doing that efficiently, it turns out, is really hard, especially as the rules become more complex. So when I originally implemented this thing, I was like, wow, I can't believe that I made this work and that it's actually like really fast and that it fully conforms to the iCal specification, which is what I was trying to do. But now I'm proud of it for, I think, a slightly different reason, which is just like the longevity of this thing being in the community. I would never have known when I made this gem back in, I think, 2009 that it would still be a thing now doesn't get as many updates as I would like, and I don't have as much time for it as I would like, but I do get like a weekly email from someone that says how much time it saved them and how like helpful it's been for their organization, which I consider big ups. It's good. I've used this at work before in a previous company. So thank you. Yeah, I'm happy to hear. Did it work? 
<laughs> I think there was nothing wrong with the gem. It was more about the implementation that I struggled with at the time. So yeah, it was a complex, very complex system. But I remember working with it and trying to understand it. And I remember understanding the gem very clearly. Like I go read the readme. I'm like, this makes perfect sense. And then I go look at the code and I'm like, this makes no sense. But I remember being like a great tool for that specific use case of what we were trying to do with that. See, it's neat. It's gotten like several ports to other languages. And at the core of it, there's this like, I don't know how to describe it. It's like a spidering kind of algorithm. Turns out like when you're, maybe this makes sense, when you're trying to follow all these different rules, there's actually a lot of heuristics that you can form where you can maybe take two rules and temporarily combine them to get efficiencies. And then you have to pull them back apart later. But it's fun. And this is also like in a world where I think back then people, even more so than now, were really upset if someone made a gem that only worked for Rails and didn't work for Ruby. There's also a bunch of stuff in IceCube that particularly makes it work for just Ruby applications that aren't Rails applications. Nice. Yeah. I wasn't around when that was a point of contention, but it was kind of instilled in me early on that if you make a gem, it needs to work for Ruby and Rails. And that's just what you have to do. And I'm like, okay. I think in recent years, it's become more acceptable to like have a gem that has active support as a dependency, which seems like a nice middle ground. Yeah, I agree. So let's get into the bootcamp stuff. Julie, you did the bootcamp with John. Like, tell me about it. Let's get into that. Yeah, my journey had consisted of learning programming solo and then also in a community. And I quickly realized learning solo was not right for me. And so learning in a community, I felt like I was able to excel more. But it wasn't really until All Aboard Bootcamp where I felt like I finally connected all my pieces together. So I did have some learning experience before joining the bootcamp, I think, there were some folks that maybe have never coded before that joined your bootcamp. But for me personally, it was where I was able to connect the different parts, backend and front end, the database, kind of the whole picture. And it was also the first exposure to Rails. So I learned Ruby, but I did not learn Rails. And I will say the bootcamp, there was a lot packed in just four weeks and somehow you made it work. You had a clear curriculum where he would spend some time doing Ruby and then some time doing Rails and then HTML, CSS, and then JavaScript. Yeah, I thought that you did such a great job of explaining some of these concepts in a really easy to understand way. I remember one comment I made was like, you explained some method like as if I was five. And I thought that was really cool because today I'll tell people, that I will ask ChatGPT to explain something to me, explain something to me as if it was five, just because I need that like very simple explanation first. And then like, okay, now explain it to me simply and then just explain it regularly. So it really stood out to me the way that you were explaining concepts very simply. So I really appreciated that. I think you're great. I was so excited to be on this podcast and be talking to you in this context. You were great in the class. And I guess... Kind of some of the things you're saying about the class resonate with me about how I think about teaching. I guess another thing that would happen when you're talking about like explaining a method, a lot of times people would say, maybe ask questions like, oh, you explained this aspect of how that method works, but what does it do in this other case, right? And my methodology is really like, I don't know, let's find out. Let's construct a quick example where we can see how it works. And that's not to teach someone how it works, but kind of to teach them that the way you find out things is you kind of just try and experiment with it. And then that connects to how we were able to 
touch on so much material. Like you're saying, we did intro to Ruby and intro to JavaScript, intro to HTML and intro to CSS and intro to Rails. And then we tied all of those things together over the course of 16 individual classes and then a follow-on project after the bootcamp. And that's a really lot of material. And you wouldn't be able to teach that material if you tried to teach it in the way that a typical class is taught or even the way that a typical book is structured. And what I mean by that is when you open a book and it's like, okay, chapter one, like let's learn to install the language. It's like, okay, yeah, yeah, install the language, fine, we'll do that, get that out of the way. Chapter two, it's here are all the types that exist in the language. And that's before you're realizing like, how do I use these things? Like, why would, what even is a type? Why would I want this? The only way you can cover that much material in that short amount of time is actually just to focus on the things that are useful to get you to the next stage. And when you think about like how you actually develop software, that's how you do it. The problem is when you construct a book, at some point you need to, if you're writing a Ruby book, for example, you need to have a chapter, or at least it seems like you need to have a chapter called classes, right? And it's like, oh, inside of the classes chapter, I'll just put everything related to classes. Like everything I want to say about classes in its entirety, I'll put in this chapter. And what you get out as a result is you get kind of like a reference manual instead of an instruction. So we did in the class is like, first thing is like teach you to create a string. Second thing is teach you to maybe get some input using gets. And then the third thing is like teach you a conditional. And with those three things, oh, now I can show you an app that you can make that is like some reasonable thing. And then what we'll do is just add components, just making sure to add them in an order that when we build up to the final thing, you have all the pieces that you need. And that when you don't know something, you know how to find it or how to discover the answer. So that's like kind of teaching you to explore to go get the answer. Like we're doing CSS and someone's like, oh, you taught us color. What if I want to make the background a different color? It's like, hopefully we've taught you enough that you can now go to Google and just ask a question and the answer is going to show up like in the one box. It's kind of like getting people from the point where they don't even know what the question is to the point where now they can ask the question and get an answer. That's like the big leap you have to make. That's like a classic example of you didn't hand, what is it? (laughs) The fish thingy and you taught us how to fish. You don't want to give people fish, right? Like you want to teach people how to fish so that they can get, get their own fish. And yeah. yeah, this reminds me of that quote. You ever seen Tommy Boy, the movie? There's like this classic quote where it, I think the original quote is, it was a, this is, has nothing to do with Ruby at this point, but the original quote is like, you can get a good look at a T-bone by sticking your head up a bull's butt, but I'd rather take the butcher's word for it. <laughs> and then in Tommy Boy, they like totally butchered the saying and they say it like like wrong. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm just like totally. But anyway, teach you to fish, not give you fish. Yeah. Hi there, Julie here. I would like to take a moment to thank Go Rails for sponsoring this episode. When I was first starting out, I struggled with finding up-to-date content to help me level up. Then I learned about Go Rails. Not only does Go Rails provide new screencasts weekly, They also have two fantastic instructors that break down complex topics into digestible chunks. On top of that, I really appreciate when they explain the whys behind the subject. One of my favorite walkthroughs is creating your first Ruby gem from scratch. What a great way to learn by stripping down to just the basics. If you care about leveling up as a Ruby engineer, you can't go wrong with GoRails. Check it out at GoRails.com. I was going to say like that actually goes really well with the ChatGPT stuff that's happening now. ChatGPT is not a very useful tool if you can't describe the problem that you're having. But once you can describe that problem, all of a sudden the answers have a lot more meaning for you. I agree with that. I've been saying to people like ChatGPT is not for like figuring out your question. It's for answering like your specific inquiry. Yeah. LLMs described generally as like just a really good compression algorithm. And I think that's a really good way to think about it. It's like it just put a bunch of information in a place and then made it 
really easy to retrieve it via natural language. And that, that's the thing that has happened. If you don't know the question, we're not yet at the point where the bot's really going to help you. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. I do really like, I don't know what it's called, but in the settings, you can set up like what you like or how you like custom your instructions. Yeah, custom instructions. And I tell it stuff like, I can only handle things in small chunks. So when you explain something to me, break it up into sections and give me only the first section so that I can then ask follow-up questions about what you're saying. And then, okay, you can move on. And then I'll be like, okay, give me the second section. And then I also really want bullet points as well because a big paragraph is not good for me. There are fun things people do where they might ask you all to maybe ask me a few clarifying questions before you actually give me an answer, right? So the LLM is actually like helping you refine your question before it answers. You know, it's pretty That's neat. really cool. Yeah. What do you think that AI's role in teaching is going to be? Or how big of an impact? Oh, man. Okay, so for context, I should also, before I even say anything about this, like just say, I work in AI for a living. That is my full-time job. So I'm like, I think very skeptical about AI-related things, but I'm also like, working on developer tools for that are AI related. So I have to be a little bit optimistic. I think there's a short-term answer to this and a long-term answer. The short-term answer is we're going to get a really good thing that is good at answering questions that are not precisely worded or that are not like formatted correctly for a search engine. One good example of this that comes up in, maybe it's not a perfect example, but in OCaml, there is a type called alpha that you can write where alphas are actually represented by the tick character of a single apostrophe and then the letter A. And man, just like even thinking about putting that into Google is like, I know it's going to trip up on that character. And what I'll actually end up searching is just like the letter A. I just know that's going to happen. <laughs> and if you do it, it's pretty much what happens. So the LLMs will just be a lot better at being able to take like the exact text that you're writing and respond to it. But then in the longer term, I think we have to question if the LLM is just giving you advice to teach you to write some code that then the computer will read. Is there something in that loop that can be short-circuited or that will end up being short-circuited where the actual like type of program that will write ends up changing? What is the point of code? Code typically is to describe in like painstaking detail in a way that the computer can understand some kind of process that you want to accomplish. But once the computer can speak in words and the computer gets more reliable at understanding what you're saying with words, I think there's a, like a question of whether or not you still need that language. And actually, they extend that even further. Okay, you go to your bank's website, and you're trying to like find maybe the balance of a particular account, right? And because there is no, before recently, there is no like computer that can talk like a human, the way that you actually go get a response is in a very structured way. You log into your account, you have to put the things in the right boxes in the right places, then it lists all the accounts, then you have to pick the right account. And all that structure exists, not because it should exist, but because the structure is how you take data that sits in a database and present it to a human in a way that they can get the answer that they want to get. But man, now once the LLM can speak English, you kind of don't need that structure anymore, right? Now you can go to it and you can just say, give me the bank account balance of my primary checking account and then get the answer back. And that changes not only how you give instructions to machines, but also like in a way changes our need for systems that are like specified in the way that we traditionally think about computer systems being specified. Like a lot of the work that we do in web applications, a lot of the work that I did at GitHub is like taking data that's in the database and then rendering it in a way that is like structured for a human. We've essentially bridged the gap by pulling ourselves closer to how the machine wants to talk. LLMs can actually bridge the gap in the other direction where it can pull the machine closer to how we want to talk. I know people when I say things like this are like, 
sounds crazy. Like nothing's actually going to change. These are a toy or whatever. I don't actually think they have to get that much better to not be a toy. I've never thought about that like that. I think that's a really interesting take. And I would gander to say you're probably right. That is probably where we're heading, especially the bank thing. I'm like, yeah, you have to click through all these screens. Like there's user flows, like people have architected diagrams of like how you do things and for what, just because it can't tell you exactly what you want to know when you go open the website. So yeah, very interesting to think about. Another example of this is like when you used to program, this is maybe dating myself, when you used to program a VCR, you're like pulling out that little book that you're like, how do I work these buttons to program? You got to get the time right. And like your time has to line up with when the program's on. But then all of a sudden there's like these DVRs where you just say, I want to record this program, right? And it just does it. That type of gap is the type of gap that we're moving across now with LLMs. To take it a little bit back to boot camps and your experience there, what compelled you to do a boot camp? Like, why did you think that you would be the right person for that? Yeah, there's a, a more detailed write-up of this on the website if anyone wants to read that. But the way that it worked was one day I was talking to my wife's cousin. Her name is Abby. Abby, hello, if you're listening. And Abby was just recently out of a job in fashion uh, due to the beginning of COVID happening. So I think a lot of people companies were downsizing and they were like a materials buyer for a fashion company in New York City. And they were like, okay, now that I am looking for a new job anyway, I've kind of always wanted to write code or to get into this. And I also could use the inevitable pay bump that will be associated with writing code instead of buying leather or whatever. So they were talking to me about it and they were saying that they wanted to do a boot camp. And when they went to go do the boot camp, I don't remember what company it was for, but they had gotten a price for like what the boot camp would cost. And the price was $20,000 for the boot camp. So you're taking like someone that just lost their job and you're having them pay $20,000. And even that just sounds crazy. But then the second thing is that they don't mind necessarily paying the $20,000. What they really mind is there's application process. And they had done the pre-screener of the application process and they were describing it. And it's like a programming interview. This is not an application. This is a programming interview. And what kind of clicked in my mind at that moment is like, these boot camps are selecting people to pay them $20,000 and they're choosing the people that already know how to program with the intention being that those people are going to pass and they're going to get jobs. Not because the boot camp taught them to be good programmers, but because like they're going to get jobs anyway. <laughs> they just need like someone to connect them with an employer that's hiring. So I was like, why don't I teach you instead? And then I figured if I'm going to teach you, it'd be really awkward for me to just like have a one-on-one -on -one thing with you and probably not that good for you because it won't be very structured. So while I'm teaching you, I just like find other people that are in the same circumstance. So I put a message on Twitter that I expected, I don't know, five people to respond to, which is like my, that's my typical response rate. And I think overnight we got like, I don't know, 400 plus responses to this. And those were people that signed up as interested. And we started the course and I think I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think like multiple hundreds of people showed up to the first session. I had this little panic where I saw all the people and I was just like, you know, I thought I was doing this very small thing and now it's this very big thing. And because of that, what happened is every, I had an idea up front of the structure of the class and like kind of the arc that it would take, but I didn't have the, in, the material set out beforehand. Um, I set a start date that was a couple of weeks out. Everyone like signed on to the start date. I had to buy a Zoom Pro account, which is like oddly expensive. You like, I just always think of Zoom as just like something that exists, but obviously you have to pay for it. And we set up the class and we did it. And every class I would basically get as far as I could in the material that I wanted to. 
with knowledge of what the next class would entail. And then we just keep moving forward like that. So I started with basically just like a giant outline. And I walked through the outline with the class. I did a couple hours between each class where I thought of examples that would be relevant for the outline. But that was pretty much it. And you can actually see the videos if you're interested, because they're all published on the website, which is allaboardbootcamp.com. So they're all laid out there, all 16 classes and the exercises that are associated with them. The number one reason startups fail is that they run out of money. There are so many ways for startups to lose money. Downtime shouldn't be one. Recent studies found that downtime can cost $427 per minute for small businesses and up to $9,000 per minute for medium-sized businesses. That's every single minute. A monthly subscription with Honey Badger helps you prevent costly downtime by giving you all the monitoring you need in one easy-to-use platform so you can quickly understand what's going on and how to fix it, which helps you stay in business. Best of all, Honey Badger is free for small teams and setup takes as little as five minutes. Get started today at honeybadger.io. That's www.honeybadger.io. Also, John had a full-time job and a baby with four other kids at the time and all the extracurricular things that he was doing just blew my mind how just efficient you were and you always stuck around after class answering questions as well. And the class didn't there was end a there. homework every day. And I graded every homework and gave feedback to every person every day. That yeah, that was amazing. Also, in the middle of this, I did a RailsConf talk and like I was preparing a RailsConf talk. And I also think that we got, we left our, I was, I had an office that I was renting at the time. And we like, our last day in the office was one of the days of the boot camp or something. Or maybe it was during the project afterward. So yeah, there's a lot going on. It was so much fun though. And then after the 16 days, there was a final project in which you were our project managers and helped us along the way. I think we had like three weeks or something to complete the final project. It was four weeks total. There was one week of everyone would come with a project and I would in the first week read their project proposal and give them feedback to try to make it the right level of difficulty. And then they would have to develop a plan for how they were going to accomplish that project along with the check-ins that they would come to me with. So for each of these people that had made it that far through the class, they did this weekly check-in. And then anyone that got all the way through presented at this final project, kind of, we had this like nice call where we kind of showed each other all the projects. And then anyone that made it there graduated the class. And the promise after that was that if you graduated the class, then I would personally try to connect you with people that I know in industry. As far as jobs, I did resume review for all of these people. Pretty deep, I think, resume review. And hopefully that was valuable. Oh, yeah. It was very detailed. We would send in our resume and you converted it into like a Google Doc and put all sorts of notes everywhere, at least for me. (laughs) No, I did. I did. I read that when I was at GitHub, a lot of resumes. So I had a pretty good sense for like the types of things that people that are screening resumes would look for. There's two reads on resumes. There's like the thing you want the hiring managers to know, but then there's also this the thing you need to have there in the correct way for the person who's screening the resumes. Like you kind of need to pass both those checks. So that's something I, I have a pretty good sense for. What do you think was the number one mistake new programmers are making in their resume? So I think people underestimate the value of projects on the resume, especially when you're coming from another industry. Like if you're coming from fashion, of course you want to talk about your experience in fashion. But when you talk about it, you wouldn't want to say, I bought 
all the leather for this company, right? Because that doesn't make sense for someone in software engineering. What you might want to say is, I facilitated a million dollars of goods transfer for the company resulting in, this is an important part, like the resulting in, what the company got out of it. And then I would also say like, when you're making these bullets about prior to technology jobs, also think about what are other things you did at the job that are kind of applicable to all jobs? Like in fashion, if you're making a bunch of purchasing decisions, a big part of that is communication. A big part of that is like teamwork. A big part of that is like working with the teams that actually need the materials to get like the timeline, the timelines set correctly. So think about those transferable things. And then, yeah, the second thing is like the projects side where just because something wasn't something that you were paid for, you should think about it as relevant experience, basically alongside the other things on your resume. Resumes would come to me and they'd have prior work experience and then they might have like a list of, I don't know, college classes or something. And there's the kind of couple common traps I think that people fall into. Resumes are tricky. I mean, like resumes get screened. I think people would be like alarmed how quickly resumes get screened. They kind of have to, like the amount of resumes that come into most companies, it's just very, very high. I think the decision during that screening process is often faster than a lot of us would like it to be, which means the more time you put into your resume, that can have like real implications on whether or not you get a callback. Right. The little details matter there. Yeah. I would always encourage people, for example, to have an objective at the top of their resume that says exactly like what they're looking for and why the company that they're targeting to work at should care. That's something that's really important. An objective is like a chance to have direct control over the first thing that the person reads when they open the document. You have like one sentence that's just like, here's why me. Right. What's the second area you would say folks should focus on putting their time into? I think formatting is like, I know people don't want to hear that. I know that we all like think formatting shouldn't matter. I think it's like just super important. Having like less information, a little bit more white space, making it easier to read, getting the right information hierarchy is like critical on a resume. Recruiters can often suss out very quickly when a resume has been kind of bloated by too much information. And that can often just be kind of an instant no. Yeah, like using words that are really big for no reason other than to just be there. I've seen that a lot. It also matters a lot in other industries too. Like when I was doing some design work, it was relayed to me by like some designers that I was interning with that like, yeah, putting like work into the design of your resume is really important. So when I submitted a resume for a job like related to design, it was like, yes, I'm going to tailor this one to use a different typography, like do the aesthetics of it a lot more cleanly versus a programming job where I'm much more focused on like, this is what, I can do. This is what I want to do. This is what I've done in the past. And these are what are the things I've worked on. Would you say that if you have a lot of information you want to put in, it's better to have two pages or try to cut it down to one? I always recommend one page, personally. I think if you're maybe going for a more academic position or I don't know, maybe you have like an advanced degree or something, maybe it makes sense to put more information than that. If there is a second page, it should be like, Like when I've included a second page, it's been, here are some talks that I gave or here are some open source projects that I worked on. But anything that was critical about work experience or college or a significant side projects goes on the front page for me. If you had to do anything differently in the bootcamp, what would that be? So we have these speakers. I thought that that went really well. We had speakers come in every Tuesday and talk about their experience in tech. I thought that was good. But I think probably the biggest thing is like, this was so much work. And it ended up being so much work to the point where I really want to do it again, but I'm not sure I can do all the work. And I think that I should have been more aggressive about trying to find like TAs up front before I started or like people to help with like the grading and feedback part. 
I think in my head, I was just like, it's 16 total days. And if I'm just willing to give up this like four weeks up front, I'm going to get this maybe really good thing. Right. And it's just, it was just the right amount of time where it was like, if it was any longer, I might not have been able to do it. But with that amount of time, I was kind of able to say like, just like heads down, do it, get it done. Yeah. Just grind. And the results are really good. I still get messages from people that were in the boot camp like regularly. Some of them have podcasts. It's really <laughs> nice. You could have easily dropped one of those extra things that you've done, like the grading our homework or I don't know, the resume thing, but you didn't. And I don't have a word for this, but like, thank you so much for giving it your all. Thank giving, you. You and, have a life. <laughs> and thank you for like, Julie, during the course of the boot camp, at some point, they were like forming study groups and I found out like, oh, they're all just like getting together like outside the class. And Julie was a big part of that. So I think you end up building this community too. We had a Slack that we were constantly kind of talking in throughout the whole project and for a bit afterward as well. So I think a big part of it is like the students, Julie, in a big way, really helped like build a community amongst the people. And that was a big deal. Were you surprised by that, that they were doing that? Or did you kind of think that might happen? I did not think that would happen. I think it's great though. And I think like it really shows that kind of the hypothesis of the class, right? Is like, there are a lot of people out there that want to make this change. And what's stopping them is this acceptance criteria or this $20,000 or this kind of fear of going to a boot camp where you're surrounded by people that all don't look like you or, or probably that are all white men that have already programmed before and are really just there to to get a job. And those are real fears. Those, those are things that like stop people from making progress. So the fact that people were like self-organizing support for each other kind of like solidifies this belief that if you just give people the right resources, it's going to work out. People should be motivated. And actually on the first day of the class, that's something that I said on the first day is if this class does not work out for you, there are a couple of conclusions. You could draw this conclusion where you're like, I guess I'm just really not smart. Or you could draw this other conclusion where you're like, John's a really bad teacher. But on the first day, I tried to make it really clear that like there's a third conclusion and it's probably the right one. And it's like that you're not putting in enough effort. So everyone here needs to understand that like this is a really hard thing to do and it's only going to work if you really want it. And by the end of the course, we had a group of people that really wanted it. Yeah, it's the same way if you go through a computer science. I saw that with people who I started freshman year with who they just didn't really want it. They just wanted to do other things or they didn't want to put in the work. They wanted to party. They wanted to play sports, whatever. But at the end of four years, the people who really wanted, who were there every day in every class grinding, they were the ones who we, who graduated. So I think that's kind of the same regardless of whether you try to do a traditional or boot camp. Like you have to want this and work for it. It's not easy. I feel like it's almost portrayed as easy, but it's really not easy. Yeah, it often is portrayed as easy or as like, the people who will get it are somehow like savant in this area, right? And they're getting it because like they have something you don't. Which is your language do you favor to do functional stuff? Yeah. Is it, actually, is it I, OCaml? I use OCaml and I think that I've been on the functional side of things turned in the direction of like that's basically the right choice. I think there are a lot of really good benefits to OCaml and it's kind of strikes a nice balance between having these concepts, but not going so far off the deep end into like non-usability. Like OCaml in a lot of ways is a you know very usable language, just like Ruby. I also think like when people hear the word functional, they're kind of, I used to be this way where someone says like, oh, you should try a functional language. And you're just like, you see functional as like anti-Ruby. You're just like, this functional way is like not the way for me. 
or like maybe you tied functional plus static typing together and you're like, I don't want to do static mm-hmm. typing. So I'm just not going to like even pay this thing any mind. But what I've been really trying to push on the functional side in Ruby is that a lot of the things that we talk about when we talk about functional programming are actually just programming patterns. So those are just some of the things that I could talk about. I gave a talk at RailsConf last year in this direction if anyone wants to check that out as well. Yeah, we'll link that in the show notes. Where can people kind of find you online? Where do you like people to connect with you? See John Run pretty much everywhere. So it's S-E-E-J-O-H-N-R-U-N. Twitter, GitHub, those are like the primary places that I am. And I tried to change it to see John Code at some point. And then work told me that I couldn't because like at GitHub, your username is like tied to like a bunch of internal systems. So I'm C. John Run forever, I guess at this point. And yeah, you can find me there. Did you used to be a runner or are you a runner? No, this is like, no. <laughs> I'm like the, the worst runner ever. I think like gotcha. the, the reason it's C. John Run is because when I was little, I was in a band and people thought, man, like, he looks so goofy when he runs. And that became the name. Yeah, I'm the worst. Very cool. I'm very I'm good on the bike. There you go. Is there anything, John, that you want to tell our listeners or share with people before we wrap this up? I love Ruby. I'm not done with Ruby. I spend a lot of time on a regular basis writing Ruby. Super, super excited about it. I've done a bunch of work with Eileen, things inside the back of the record. And I think that like Rails as a framework is not only like meaningful to Ruby, but also kind of whether or not they want to admit it, a kind of guiding path for a lot of web frameworks in other languages. So just like kudos to everyone that has worked on this or continues to work on it and I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, I guess that's kind of it. And thank you for having me. Absolutely. Like I said, we'll definitely have you back to have this functional programming discussion. So thank you for coming. Sounds great. Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. Well, everyone else, we'll see you back here next week. Same time, same great place. Bye. Bye, everyone. <laughs>